This episode is brought to you by Arches and Halos. Between being on Zoom calls all day, having to wear a mask everywhere, and now using your eyes and your eyes only to smile at people, it feels like the main thing people notice now are our eyes. Arches and Halos is our favorite line of brow products that are so easy to find, pick up, and with a few quick steps, you can have the most amazing brows ever. They have an amazing range of products from tweezers, razors, pencils, pomade, mousses, and gels. Find Arches and Halos on your next trip to Target and Walgreens. Arches and Halos, professional brow grooming. Be bold, be you. Xfinity XFi is more than just fast. It's internet that gives you peace of mind security. Because if it's connected, it's protected. Yeah, even your robot vacuum. Can your internet do that? Learn more at Xfinity.com slash XFi. Hey, this is Annie, and you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Our guests today are the co-hosts of the Bechdel cast, Jamie and Caitlin. Jamie and Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us. Hi. Hi. Thanks, thanks for, for having us. Whoa. Almost in unison. <laughs> <laughs> We are uh, big, big fans of yours. As our listeners know, we love, 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 love digging into pop culture and looking at it through a feminist lens, hopefully in a fun, enjoyable way. Could you tell us a bit about yourselves and your show? Well, we, we're both comedians. Yes. Um, we're both writers. Mm-hmm. Um, we host The Bechdel Cast, as you said, uh, which is a show where we examine the portrayal of women in movies through an intersectional feminist lens. Um, and yeah, we, I mean, we, we made the show both because we didn't uh, think that there was a show like it out there. Uh, most of the movie podcasts were just like, yep, it's awesome. <laughs> uh, and it's, it was dudes <laughs> saying that movies by dudes. Uh, Blade rolled. Runner is so cool. There's actually nothing wrong with it. And, <laughs> and it's made and, and to like, kind of like, keep ourselves accountable and make us better writers and people. Yeah. That was the idea. Didn't work out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a really important thing on this show is um, constantly growing and trying to become better and more aware. So I definitely encourage listeners to check out your show. Uh, recently, you guys had um, Alfred Molina on there. Mm-hmm. Yes, Love it. I want the shirt so badly. <laughs> Very so great. <laughs> oh, please send me one. That was a, a ploy for this whole <laughs> podcast collaboration. Um, and most listeners probably know what the Bechdel test is, but as a primer, would you mind giving us a brief rundown? I mean, they could just check out your podcast because you have a wonderful intro song that explains it, but, you know, <laughs> just to get everybody on the same page. Uh, yeah, we. so the Bechdel test uh, is a media test metric uh, invented by uh, cartoonist Alison Bechdel, and for our purposes, we require that there be a scene in any piece of narrative fiction that has two named female identifying characters who talk about something other than a man for more than two lines of dialogue. Yes. Yeah, there are different variations of it, but that's the one that we use. And as we often point out on our show, it's a low bar. You wouldn't think it would be that hard for two named women to speak to each other about something other than a man. And And yet yet, it does not (laughs) happen that often. And when it does happen, it's usually like it just like barely squeaks by 
or or the women are telling each other how much they hate each other, <laughs> or they're like <laughs> calling each other ugly. Like it's you know it's it's a flawed metric, but it wasn't meant intended to be used as intensely as it is used. It was originally in a comic that Alice Bechtel uh, wrote in the eighties. Yeah, right. It was kind of more of a almost a joke, pointing something out. Right. <laughs> exactly. And then it became, Right, um, but yes, it, it is a it is a low bar, and yet a, a lot of movies, especially as I, I've gotten older and become feminist, like really accepted it and embraced it. It's surprising how many movies I've had to go back to that were favorites of mine and say, "Well, hmm, that <laughs> is a pass. main theme <laughs> of our podcast: either women who are the love interest or women just providing exposition about the male protagonist." Mm-hmm. Yep. I guess that's what we're for. That's all I do. <laughs> and we always look like, great yeah. doing it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm a pro. <laughs> and the the idea that you pitched was you wanted to talk about um, the portrayal of women in movies in general, but maybe with a particular focus or a starting off point with Disney movies, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I immediately... Because I'm a big nerd, I was like, "Wait, which which Disney movies are we talking about? Are we talking about the princesses like Black Widow? Does she count Princess Leia? What about her? Because Disney owns everything. <laughs> they, oh yeah, they are just a conglomerate that is swallowing us whole. Yeah, but um, I, yeah, we were thinking more along the lines of like the classic Disney princesses: your Snow Whites, your Cinderellas, the ones on the backpacks. Yeah, basically. your your. Mm. Your classic backpack princess. Your bells, your jasmines. <laughs> Although Mulan is never on the backpacks, and that always was upsetting to me as a child and now. Because Disney is racist. And Mulan <laughs> is the best. I argue, I still think Mulan is the best princess in terms of, uh, like, from a, using a feminist bar and just, like, she's the coolest. Yeah. And the songs are great in that movie. All slappers, yeah. Yeah. Was that, do you you each have a favorite when you were a kid? Which was your favorite Disney princess? Mm, I don't know if I had a favorite Disney princess because my favorite Disney movie when I was a kid was The Great Mouse Detective. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Subverting. Mm -hmm. I know. I would say my favorite movie that has a Disney princess in it when I was a kid was probably, probably Aladdin. Oh, cool. Um, today, it is Moana. My favorite uh, My favorite when I was a kid was definitely Belle and Beauty and the Beast. I think strictly because she had brown hair uh-huh. uh, and, <laughs> and could read, which at the time was like, oh, she can read? Amazing. <laughs> um, so I was like, brown hair can read. Well, I feel seen <laughs> as a brown hair child who can read. Um and then, yeah, now these days it is a uh, tie. I think Mulan is my fave, but Moana is also incredible. Oh, Moana. Yeah, it's pretty great. Uh, mine was, and I love looking back at this now because uh, mine was uh, Princess Aurora from The Sleeping Beauty, and she pretty much spends the whole movie asleep. <laughs> asleep, unconscious. <laughs> so I'm like, why did I, why was she my favorite? I don't know. I think I really liked Maleficent, and also they said hell in that movie, which as a kid, I was like, oh, yeah. oh, oh my gosh. Maleficent <laughs> is, inc- I mean, like as a, just the way that character is designed is, was the scariest person in the world to me when mm-hmm. I was a kid. Because she was like, yeah. So she was, looked really sharp. I remember that was like my specific fear. I'm like, she looks She's like a knife. Pointy. 
Yeah. The, yeah. the scariest for me was Ursula in Little Mermaid. Mm. Ursula. I wanted to be Ursula. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was pretty frightening too. Yeah. But uh, okay, let's uh, let's get into this discussion around the portrayal of of women in movies and particularly of Disney and it sounds like we're talking about Disney princesses right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's pretty pretty well understood, uh, especially as I've gotten older that it's not great. <laughs> the, um, what do you mean? Because <laughs> you spend the whole movie, like, success in these movies is finding your Prince Charming and getting married. That is, like, your entire goal in yeah. life. Right, because yeah. a lot of them are based on existing fairy tales. That, yeah, which almost all of them. The, the narratives of those are always, like, Oh, damsel in distress, and then she gets rescued by her prince charming, and then they live happily ever after. Something I think is like interesting that we're we, we're uh, gearing up for a Little Mermaid episode right now, so we're, we're kind of thinking a lot about it. Is that especially like once you hit the Disney Renaissance, so like Little Mermaid and on, um, there's like such a specific formula that all the princess movies follow, uh, I think with the exception of Aladdin, because Jasmine's not the main character. Right. But uh, where at the, it, they always start out okay, where there's always that song in the beginning, like in The Little Mermaid and in Beauty and the Beast, where it's like there's some sort of like intellectual longing from the princess character who's like, I want to, you know, bust out of my normal life. I want to go out in the world and I want to learn things and all this stuff. And then immediately after that song, it's always derailed by like, and the only way to do that is boyfriend or large (laughs) dog if it's Beauty and the Beast. Like, And so it's just always, it's frustrating because those are always the best songs in the movie usually. Mm -hmm. And they're Mm -hmm. the topic of it is generally like vague enough of like wanting to learn and then it's opposite. Well even with Aladdin even though she doesn't have Jasmine doesn't have a song about it yeah. her driving desire in the first chunk of the movie is to like escape the palace life and cuz she doesn't want like right. her father deciding her future for her, all that stuff so she like has a drive to like go out into the world and live her own life. But then immediately she's like, well, what if I met Aladdin though and (laughs) married him? Literally, It's always literally the first person she meets upon Mm -hmm. going into the, like Ariel like goes to the surface and is like, oh boy. And like, I mean, I guess Belle's is a little more complicated because she like trades her body for her bad inventor dad. Like there, and the daddy issues, like that's a whole thing too. But it's the something that because your era is like it, the the criticisms surrounding Disney princesses are so like well known generally now that it's it's almost like okay fine another person saying like Ariel traded her legs and her voice to get a boyfriend but there's <laughs> there are good parts hidden in there and it makes it even more disappointing that those are kind of buried by Mm -hmm. all these, like, normative, boring stories. Yeah, it's a couple years ago, I have a friend who, um, we we would just stay up and discuss all kinds of things, and and somehow or another, the conversation became, 
which Disney princess do you think is the most problematic? Like, that's how well-known, it's just assumed, they're <laughs> good problematic. <laughs> and I, we, I think she said Belle and I said Ariel. But this was years ago, so I'd have to revisit, mm-hmm. revisit the question. I think, I mean, Sleeping Beauty is an easy choice just because she's not allowed to do anything the whole movie. But I don't know. I mean, Ariel seems to be the popular choice for... Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the most egregious example on the sur- on the surface, at least. Wow, what Aye. a pun! Wow. <laughs> um, I would. I mean, yeah. I would maybe take it all the way back to the original Disney princess of Snow White, who's no one's favorite. No. <laughs> but, Snow White uh, sucks. She it's sucks. Just, that movie sucks. Yeah. And yeah, we're saying it. But hot takes. <laughs> I, I don't take it back. You're sticking by it. Yeah. Hmm. It has been a while since I've seen Snow White. And and something you said earlier I hadn't really considered because um, in the second half of this discussion, we're going to look at the treatment of mothers in, in Disney movies. But I haven't really thought about, like, daddy issues and fathers in Disney movies. Oh. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there's, I mean, the the... Majority of Disney princesses, and this has, like, gradually changed over time. Like, I think by the time you hit Frozen, there's two living parents. There are two parents. They yeah. Well, they die shortly after we meet them. They are killed immediately. <laughs> but at least there's, you know, gender parity in uh, who dies. Uh, <laughs> but in, in most of them, uh, especially, like, the Disney Renaissance ones, it's, like, a part of the formula that there's no mother. Mm-hmm. And in... It's like in some, it's, I mean, not really in any is it referred to where Ariel has King Triton, who's just like this, you know, he doesn't understand his teenage daughter and he destroys everything she owns because he's confused. Uh, mm. And then the story ends with her still needing his permission to live the life she wants to live because he's the only one who can alter her body permanently and give her over to another man. So that's not good. Um, no. It's a, I mean, and then Belle's father is a huge portion of uh, Beauty and the Beast. Pocahontas yeah. uh, has a, another, I mean, kind of closer to King Triton, like a powerful father who doesn't get it yeah. uh, kind of figure. Uh, Mulan has a mom, but oh, she's not as important oh, yeah. in the narrative as the dad. Yeah. Uh, so it all, all the princesses sort of have some patriarch-type figure um, who gets to determine what happens to her life. Because even though Mulan has a mom, it's her father who tells her that, you know, she has to live out this you know, being married off life instead of going off to fight like she wants to. Same thing with um, Frozen, even though we meet both parents and even though they are killed, is it shipwreck, I think? Yeah. Um, yeah. The mother in that movie, while she is on screen, I don't think has any lines or only says like yeah. one or two things. And then it's the father character who is making all the decisions, calling all the shots, like pushing the story forward in any significant way. So like, the mother may as well not even be there because of how unimportant she is to the story. Yeah, it seems like almost an empty response to like, Disney princesses never have moms. It's like, well, we rendered one, (laughs) but we didn't (laughs) hire anyone to voice her. Um, She was there briefly. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, I don't know. Yeah, and then you sort. I, I mean, it's subverted later on. I know that the Rapunzel has. I mean, I'll, she has an evil mother figure entangled. It's a villain slash mother. Yeah. So if women are on screen, they can't be. But with Moana, nice. she has um both a mother that she talks to and who supports her, mm-hmm. and it is and a grandma, a ghost and a grandmother who is killed. She is killed, but at least <laughs> from old age and not from like some violent death, which the mother characters I think are. We're supposed to assume that they die, or like with at least with like Frozen. There's Frozen, there's like a whole bizarro theory that Frozen, the Little Mermaid, and Tangled are all connected, and that uh, the parents in Frozen die on the way to Ariel's wedding or something. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of wild theories out there, and I believe all of them. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I went on a deep dive about how all of the uh, Pixar movies are connected in, yeah. in the same universe. <laughs> there seems to be a lot of water to that one. I don't know. There seems to be yeah. a lot of credibility. Yeah, that is definitely, I mean, if you're looking for a fun or probably not fun at all time, um, get me drunk <laughs> and put me in front of a Pixar movie and I will explain how they're all connected <laughs> in the most conspiratorial way. <laughs> um but uh, I was thinking about going back to Sleeping Beauty, which, again, I haven't watched it forever, but it was my favorite as a child. I guess she did. She had those, like, three fairies, women that she she lived with. Yeah, that's true. And then Cinderella had the fairy godmother. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, in the, but in both of those stories, I feel like those characters are introduced only because the princess character doesn't have enough personality we don't know her well enough to be to be able we're not supposed to believe that she could do it on her own uh with mm. like Cinderella like i know she's upset but she could walk out of the house you know like <laughs> but but it's like no she needs this mat she needs magic to to leave the house or like sleeping beauty needs magic to not be dead basically <laughs> Or Snow White needs the magic of necrophilia to bring her back to life. <laughs> well, isn't it, a lot of these, it's like true love's kiss that like breaks whatever yeah. spell. It's true love's kiss from a man, of course. Like it's it's always this heteronormative right. story. Which, I mean, the, the like, I mean, it's, but the the whole consent thing with true love's kiss is like, uh, the prince in Snow White Fully thought she was dead when he yeah. when he really laid one on her. Uh, but then they, he was like, "Oh, you're alive, sick. She's <laughs> alive, really- but she was asleep, and therefore could not give consent." Right, uh, mm-hmm. and you can never give consent when you're dead. <laughs> That's true, Jamie. It's like we always say on the show. <laughs> it's our main catchphrase. <laughs> <laughs> Which sounds vaguely threatening, um, and I didn't mean it. You can't keep. <laughs> that does sound it is not a threatening. Threat. Yeah, it's just a fact. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, yeah. right. I'm having a panic attack. <laughs> and then when we do, this is especially true of the earlier Disney princess movies, but if we do see a mother figure, it is often an evil stepmother. So it's yes, yeah. villainizing another woman for reasons that you could maybe 
argue or justified, but the way the narrative sets it up, like, usually not. It's usually, like, right. with Snow White, it's just this woman who's so petty that she's not the prettiest woman in all the land. And then it's that, kind of the same deal with uh, the evil stepmother who is just like, my daughter's look weird. Oh, and Cinderella? And, yeah, sorry, Cinderella. Yeah. yeah, and Cinderella doesn't look weird, and so she will be... And like an unpaid worker forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's just like their intern permanently. Um, mm. It's bad. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah, I don't know. And it's not to say that the father figures that are presented, they're usually complicated, and but they're not villains. They're allowed to be complicated in yeah. a way that like female characters are like, no, they're evil. Right. But Triton, who like destroys everything his daughter cares about, uh, he's just confused. And like <laughs> Chief Powhatan, who's like threatened. I mean, and Chief Powhatan, uh, it's different because he's kind of trying to like get rid of people who are actively trying to like eradicate every thing that, you know, like Native American culture. All the indigenous people. Yeah. So he's got like mm-hmm. better points. <laughs> and then <laughs> those fathers are both like redeemed by the end, whereas like the evil stepmothers, at least in Snow White, uh, falls off a cliff. They're killed. Has a yeah. boulder land on top of her. Maleficent, is she killed? I don't I remember. Don't, I've I only seen ever seen Sleeping Beauty once. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure she gets, she turns into a dragon and gets stabbed I mean, she by does Prince get Philip. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, she gets slain. Ma- Maleficent and, uh, this is just a fun little fact I learned. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> Maleficent and the evil stepmother are, if you look at the characters side by side, it's like the exact same build of a character. They just like recycled one in making the other. Yeah. yeah. And they're also voiced by the same person. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Well, uh-huh. that that would be a fun, like, these worlds are connected type thing, too. I'll have to think about that she's later. She's only one evil lady. <laughs> yeah, she's just exactly. going around marrying a bunch of men who already have daughters and being the <laughs> evil stepmother to all of them. But Maleficent mm-hmm. uh, is, I think, like, she's also petty, jealous of Aurora, but she's a little closer connected to Ursula I think of like she is upset that she's been cast out of the royal, um, uh, out of like the royal in circle, um, and then you know comes back to punish a teen mm-hmm. for some reason. Yeah, instead of the person who uh, wronged her. Oh yeah, it's always like their teen daughter that she targets. That they use this leverage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. I recently. Watched. I don't know if either of you ever saw um, the Black Cauldron. I don't think I have. <laughs> Ooh, I've never seen it, but it's. I'm. I'm. I'd be interested to see it. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when it came out. Um, it was billed in this way of like it was a movie that was too dark for Disney to release. It has no songs in it. Um, and as a kid, I was like, woo, <laughs> I gotta see this. And I, it's obviously a little different because it's based on that book, The Black Cauldron. Um, mm-hmm. But I, yeah, it's still like a princess, one one female character. There are three witches later, which is very similar to Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. It, it's interesting that it seems to be a very similar story, just told in different ways. Yeah, yeah. It's like they'll. It's all. It's most of the time. It's like 
Here's a very similar story with some elements change taking place in a different Western European country. Like that's (laughs) Mm -hmm. usually until more recently what it's always been. But it's because they're adapting the same European fairy tales over and over and not really exploring much uh, outside of that region. (laughs) I wonder why. Hmm. I wonder why. I wonder. Uh, I know we, this probably goes without saying, but we've done an episode on um, action figures, and so many executives have said one of the reasons that um, the princesses, they make so much money that they don't think that they have to make new content for young girls because they're already selling so much with princesses. So they don't. So entire much. movies have been written by by that like mindset of thinking, I want to sell t- toys to boys, mm-hmm. so I'm going to make movies with boys in them, with men in them, to sell action figures to boys, because they would never buy an action figure of a female <laughs> character. So, and, and these girls already have the princesses, so we'll, we'll focus on like this category of selling toys to boys. That's how entire stories get written. What a what a gift! And that I mean that makes total sense, and it's so frustrating that um, you know the same princesses are still kind of like the princesses from the 1950s and 90s are still the ones most prominently featured on all the princess merch. Mm-hmm. But it is yeah. it's it's weird. It feels like a catch twenty two to some extent. Of like, I guess if you're a business person lacking a moral compass, which is all of them. Uh, you would just be like, well, if this sells, this doesn't cost me any money to come up with new IP. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Evil. Yeah, real bad. But then every once in a while you do see like a character that, um, I don't know, I think like Ray from Star Wars is a good example of like a female character who appeals to boys and girls and hopefully, I mean, like would be the type of action figure and the type of protagonist that would appeal to all kids and isn't, so intensely gendered to like a comical degree that all the all the princess characters are. Well, but do you remember the controversy around that from a yeah. few years ago, where like they were selling? I forget which toy company it was, but they were selling like a pack of little action figures from The Force Awakens, and uh, Ray, who is the main character of the movie, yeah. was not included in Wait, it. Wait, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. The idea was like, oh, boys aren't wanna, gonna gonna want to buy this if a woman's in these yeah. among these toys. And it's like, she's the main it? character. How can you do the story? <laughs> That's insane. Yeah, it was also they took a financial gamble that failed because turns out kids did want that toy yeah. of Ray, and they had all of this excess of Kylo Ren, who they thought was going to be the big selling toy, the male character. It's like, we need more Adam Driver dolls. <laughs> <laughs> and parents were like, my kid wants this Ray doll, and toy sellers were like, we don't have we didn't it. didn't make it. Wow. Yeah. There- that has happened over and over again. Like, it, it, they did that with the Monopoly, the Star Wars Monopoly. They didn't feature her. Um, t-shirts with, like, group pictures of Star Wars characters don't feature her. Didn't they do that with like? Wasn't there like a Black Widow? Black Widow, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and then yep. e- even the princesses. It's as the princesses slowly become, you know, they're representing more realistic body types. They're representing something other than an unrealistically proportioned white lady. Uh, mm-hmm. There's still like I don't know if anyone remembers when the Merida from Brave. 
Mm. Um, when she was like released as part of the Disney princess gang, they changed her appearance to make her skinnier and change her hair from being messy to being very like quaffed and fancy. And they put makeup on her, even though that character is supposed to be very young. And right. They gave her the princess treatment, even though part of the point of the movie she was in was to subvert that. And that was a big issue because the the woman who wrote that character was like, no, you can't do that. That was, I was trying <laughs> was like to avoid point. that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but they'll always try, man. They'll always try. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was going to say that, and that's another thing worth mentioning about the way these Disney princesses have been animated and drawn and just their aesthetic is that they often have these body types that, I mean, there's very little differentiation among them. They are these like, and especially I'm thinking of Jasmine and Ariel where they have these microscopic waists. They have these like very revealing outfits and these characters are supposed to be like teenagers like Ariel is 16 they're it's said in the like movie 16 basic or somewhere Jasmine unclear but like yeah, young and you know they're wearing these like tiny skimpy outfits and like if if people want to wear outfits like that that's fine but also they're like really over sexualizing young teen girls and showing these body types that according to the movie is like presenting this ideal standard of beauty and all that like little girls are going to see this and they're thinking, Oh, this is, you know, this is the body type that gets me the Prince charming. So I have to try to strive for that. And it's just like placing these really. And there is always this moment where in a lot of the Disney princess movies where all of a sudden, you know, you start out and, and I still think most of the Disney Renaissance princess movies at least start out in an okay place of like, She's your everyday girl, except she's a princess. <laughs> but uh, there's a moment where she gets not exactly like a makeover, but, you know, it's like Belle comes out in a dress and all of a sudden she's romantically desirable in a way she wasn't when she was in her everyday clothes. Or yeah. that happens with Ariel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Eric sees her in a pink dress and is like, oh, I like her. And, <laughs> you know, it's so, it's so ingrained. Or the second, you know, Jasmine takes off that she's she when she meets a lot and she's wearing this sort of like potato sack potato thing. sack and then she takes it off and he's like oh you know it's <laughs> it totally catering to the male gaze and and just kind of sells out the work that they do at the beginning to be like no she's not like the other girls but then they spend the rest of the movie treating her exactly like the other <laughs> girls yeah mm-hmm. yeah the magical movie makeover and I, there are studies after studies that show that young girls take in those messages at such an early age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to see this, like, here's the ideal beauty standard. Your entire goal in life is to find a man and get married. And your value is only in your looks. Yep. Um, yeah. yeah, you get that stuff really early. And it sticks with you. What affected me the most when I was a kid was definitely like the unrealistic bodies. <laughs> like that really resonated yeah. with me as a kid. And then I think, God, this is probably two years ago now when they started to release uh, Barbies with different body shapes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There was a long feature published uh, about 
the focus groups of having like very young kids playing with Barbies with different body shapes. They were maybe four or five years old and already they had seen enough princess movies and, and, and taken in enough media to be critical of different body shapes oh. uh, and saying like, you know, like hearing out of a four-year-old's mouth, like that's not what a doll's supposed to look like. And like, she's ugly and all this stuff. And oh it like, God. it gets to you so young. Like it, yeah. that, I, I was taken aback by like how young the kids were when they had already internalized that's not how a doll or an ideal mm-hmm. looks. Which just means that they are, there needs to be such a huge reversal in the way that movies and other media consumed by children needs to present its characters and like show display like many different body types and and show them all as being um romantically appealing and, and the tricky- it, not that that's the most important thing but like because that's what's we're all so conditioned to think like you know that's at least one of the messages that needs to get across Right, and it's like it takes so long and is to some degrees impossible to fully untrain those thoughts. It's like, you know, it's like we're all trying to do the work and untrain, but there's like times where I have to catch myself in something like that because that's how I've felt since I was three. Right, same. You know, so it's like for anyone to, I mean, hopefully there could be a generation that's completely untouched (laughs) by that kind of stuff, but they're not currently living apparently. (laughs) So we've all been conned by the patriarchy God. and the capitalists and all the yeah dorks, mm-hmm. <laughs> all dorks. one thing um, another thing that I I have realized through this show and that I, I already sort of knew but um, is how so many of these princesses they're always in the, the, the passive role and um I went back and I I used to write a lot as a kid and every time I would write something, the main character was male and I was always kind of confused by that because you would think I would write someone who was female like Mm -hmm. I was. Um, And I think it's because I wanted this like active character and almost all of the female characters I had saw and consumed through media were passive. Right, yeah. yeah, and that's something that I have a lot of friends that have echoed that that statement that they would write things and the main character would be male. And it was just kind of a strange realization for me that I had, again, is another thing that I had just taken in and had become a part of, like, myself. Yeah, you totally. don't realize how much it affects your subconscious until you're an adult and you're like, oh, no, I've been tricked. Yeah. <laughs> and it truly happens to, like, Everyone. Yeah. Even, yeah, it's, God, I, I don't want to read what I wrote when I was a kid. <laughs> oh, that's very brave of you. <laughs> I had a good time. I had a, I, I mean, I, I had a long way to go, we shall say, but I, I enjoyed it greatly. <laughs> I, I used to write a character when I was a kid. Her name was Neptune Starlet. Wow. Oh, yeah. my gosh. And she was really, I'm in love. She was really tall like me. And she, I think her thing was that she was a singer, but also she was good at chemistry and she would use chemistry. She created some potion to make everyone think she was a good singer, but she wasn't. So she was a woman in STEM. She was a woman in STEM and she was a mediocre artist. So she kind of contained multitudes. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Should pick it up again one of these days. I would read it. 
I recently was watching um, the new MST3K 3000, whatever it is. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And there was a movie on there, and I know they pick bad movies, but there was a movie on there that was so bad, like, I was getting angry. (laughs) I can't remember which one it was called, but it was the one that was obviously a knockoff of Star Wars. No way you could not see it. Yeah. (laughs) And the main character, like, all of the women, if they were young and of a certain body type— they wore essentially like leather straps, um, and then old women wore potato sacks, and then the men got to wear like actual real clothes. But the main character, who is ostensibly the the lead character, the strongest, she was some commander, she was well known. She got captured like six times, Good Lord. and she had to get saved. By like three different dudes and a robot all the time. <laughs> She's in these like leather straps that make no sense. She, I, she was just spent the whole movie. I couldn't understand. I, I knew it was supposed to be bad, and I was still getting angry. It was, about it. Uh, those are my favorite kinds of hate watches, where you're just like multiple. So many people could have stopped this from happening, and yet <laughs> there were so many people who were involved in anything. But also, like, yeah, that that sounds like a horrible like B movie that we can like easily make fun of. But that's also what happens in like high budget Hollywood mainstream A movies where, like, women are so hypersexualized and objectified. They are put in positions where they have no agency, constantly need to be saved. Like, this happens all the time in, like, just regular Hollywood action movies. Yeah, I mean, like, two of our favorites that we've covered on the show are uh, when Kirsten Dunst is literally uh, caught in a web and is uh, like immobile for the entire climax of Spider-Man 2. Like she's there, but she just can't participate. She has to watch. Uh, mm-hmm. And then it's, which character in Pacific Rim gets launched out of the climax oh, it's of the, the movie? <laughs> it's so, like it's... Uh, Makamori. I couldn't, I didn't like that movie, but then, but it was like so agreed because she was a well-characterized, like she, we we knew a lot about her, but then when it came down to the final battle... I forget how it was made clear in plot, but they put her in like this tubey thing and they were like, see ya, it's not safe. And they launch her out of the climax of the movie. I was like, are you kidding? Same thing she, happens with uh, Ariel where like... Yeah, well, she's, she's, I don't know. I thought I, she's like more of an example for me as like someone who's allowed to be like, oh, she can fight and do one thing, but she never gets to win. The, like Eric wins the battle, but she's right. she's there and like doing stuff, but she doesn't get the like killing Which is blow. the most crazy thing because she is the protagonist of the movie. Like yeah. any good storytelling class will teach you that the protagonist of the movie is the one who drives the narrative and determines the outcome and like is participating in the climax of the story. So for her to be completely sidelined and for Eric, the love interest, to like come in and save the day, like that's that's bad storytelling. That's like horrible. Yeah, it's bad. Sigh. It's yeah. It's frustrating. It's frustrating that in these things that are sold to young girls, that the main character is supposedly the the young female character. They still don't get like they're not. It's almost like they're not the main character. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, that's annoying. Yeah. 
Um, well, we do have some more discussion around all of this, but we're going to pause for a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode of Stuff Mom Never Told You is brought to you by HelloFresh. Get fresh pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door with HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh lets you skip those trips to the grocery store and makes home cooking fun, easy, and affordable. And while we're under a quarantine, I will say HelloFresh has so many recipes. It's been wonderful because it gets me out of my rut and I'm able to try new recipes instead of my same old, same old. And they offer contactless delivery to your doorstep for easy home cooking with the family so you don't have to have those stressful meal planning and grocery store trips. Even better, HelloFresh's pre-portioned ingredients means there's less prep for you and less food waste. So if you're ready to try some of the delicious food from HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com slash MomStuff80 and use code MomStuff80 to get a total of $80 off, including free shipping on your first box. That's HelloFresh.com slash MomStuff80 and use code MomStuff80 to get a total of $80 off and free shipping on your first box. Additional restrictions apply. Please visit HelloFresh.com for more details. This episode is brought to you by Quip. When's the last time you got rewarded for brushing your teeth? With Quip's new Smart Electric Toothbrush, good habits can earn you great perks like free products, gift cards, and more. The Quip Smart Brush for adults and kids connects to the Quip app with Bluetooth, so you can track when you're brushing, get tips, you can earn points, and you can redeem those points for rewards. Already have a Quip? Upgrade it with a smart motor and keep the features you know and love. And beyond the brush, Quip has everything you need to build a complete routine. Equal-friendly solar battery charger to power your Quip with sunshine and the refresh bag to bring you good oral care habits everywhere you go. Plus, you can get brush head, toothpaste, and floss refills delivered from $5. And shipping is free. How smart is that? Start getting rewards for brushing your teeth today and go to getquip.com slash stuffmom right now to get your first refill free. That is your first refill free at getquip.com slash stuffmom, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash stuffmom. Quip, better oral health made simple and rewarding. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So I wanted to come back to this conversation around women. And I've been talking around women, around stepmothers, because <laughs> I've been talking about it for a long time. I've been building it up because I kind of went on this. On the other podcast I do, um, Savor, we do this series called Food Fairy Tales, where we do dramatic readings of fairy tales that have food in them. And we found one, um, it was pretty dark, about mm. a stepmother murdering her stepchild and blaming it on the other child um, and then ah. feeding the child to the family. It all works out in the end. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> but I, it got me thinking about this evil stepmother trope, and I, I went on a, a research. I, I just wanted to read everything I could about it, and so I thought I'd include <laughs> some of this, some of the stuff I learned in this episode, because as we've been talking about, if you look at Disney movies, especially the old school classic ones, the evil stepmother trope and the idealized, perfectly maternal mother trope is so prevalent in all of them. And as I was doing this research, I tried to think of a Disney mother who isn't absent, dead, or evil. And I thought of Brave, 
Mm-hmm. The Incredibles. Toy Story, I guess. <laughs> She's like there. And I, I mean, these are like, oh, like Andy's, Pixar, Andy's Disney. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Princess and the Frog, although when I was reading about that, she her mother is there, but the story, again, is more like about her relationship with her dad. Yeah. Yeah. Moana. And these are all newer examples. Right. You'd be hard-pressed to name one from the, like, older... Classics. From like the nineties and before, yeah. <laughs> I recently saw um Rick and Ralph two oh, with my too. parents, which was fun because uh they hadn't seen the first one. Um and also they're not on the internet, so I'm sure that a lot of that went over their head. But it's even <laughs> a joke in Wreck It Ralph too that like none of them had mothers almost. That was my favorite the there's two scenes and this isn't a spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen um Ralph Breaks the Internet, but because one of them they were using as, like, a, a trailer for the movie, basically. But there are two different sequences in the movie where all the Disney princesses are, like, hanging yes, out. Yes, yeah. And mm-hmm. in the first one that they they used as, like, promo for the movie, they— um, What's her name? Pen- Penelope? Yes. And, yeah. Little Sarah Silverman. Yeah. Is that like- <laughs> <laughs> she finds herself among all these Disney princesses, and they're, like— questioning the validity of, like, her being a Disney princess also or, like, or something like that. And they're like, wait, are you only identified by your relationship to a man? And, oh, uh, do you have an evil stepmother? Like, like, all this different stuff. So they're like... That's calling it like having it both ways because it's like, okay, you're calling out like all our most popular properties are problematic. That doesn't mean they're not going to stop making a bajillion dollars off of it. They're just referencing their own properties and like using that to seem cool and make more money. Right. It's like when, I don't know, like a lot of times on like shows on, and this is more like adult media, but like on TV when they let the show, like when The Simpsons pokes at the Fox network, it's supposed to be like, hey, yeah, we're an evil corporation that enables a horrible president, but we're like in on it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well... So what? Like, then stop doing that. You know, I don't know. I used to think that was, like, really edgy and cool and, like, oh, wow, the people who are, like, doing horrible stuff, like, know it. But that's (laughs) worse. I don't Mm -hmm. know. (laughs) I was like, oh, cool, so they know it and it's fine. They're still capitalizing on it? They're still like, yeah, we're not going to, like, stop promoting rape culture, but we're, like, aware we're doing it. (laughs) You're like, okay, that's terrible, cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was that was an interesting thing of that whole that scene of the Disney princesses in um, Ralph Breaks the Internet of um, yeah being aware and I mean I guess if you if the criticism is enough that it is just generally assumed that these characters are problematic, um, what do you do? Uh, <laughs> right, right. But poke fun at it, but it is odd because it's like you're still doing it. Though. Right. And I, I know several listeners have written in and said that they like the new the newer Disney princesses, but they're afraid that it's like almost too much of a course correct of like demonizing princess things that are kind of coded as feminine and being like, oh, I hate all of these girly things. Which yeah, yeah, is interesting. I hadn't really considered it in that way. Yeah. Um because most of the new princesses, yeah, are like, I don't want to be a princess. I hate all this stuff. But, but then yeah, what about like a, a kid who's genuinely feminine and, and enjoys that? Yeah. 
Right, right. <sighs> it's tricky. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it does seem like movies in general, and I don't dislike this at all, but they're leaning kind of hard on, again, it's kind of like a different version of the not like the other girls trope yeah. of like, oh, I don't like feminine stuff. I'm not like the other princesses. Right. And it's, I mean, it's not the princess's fault. It's the fault of the story. Yeah. Princesses are mm-hmm. in, but people love to blame women for things. So, you know, <laughs> easier to make it the princess's fault. Did anyone see Zootopia? I uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like that was uh, an interesting kind of deviation from a, a, a Disney movie, but like in no way Disney princess. And also like they're all animals. So, you know. Right. But also, you know, it's a female character. She's a cop. She's like hell bent on like justice and stuff like that. So. Mm-hmm. Or uh, if I shouldn't say hell bent. Uh, she's. Um, no, you're good. <laughs> if they say, if they, swear. Can say it, if they can say it in Sleeping Beauty, <laughs> that's true. You can say it. <laughs> uh, we recently did an episode on um, tabletop games, and there are two studies that confirm that you're more likely to find a farm animal on the cover of a tabletop game than a female character. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> well, yeah, right? <laughs> well, we all love farm animals, that's, so that makes sense. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I mean nothing against the farm animal community. Right. To all your farm animal <laughs> listeners, we don't mean to offend you. Yeah, I apologize. You, but, like, I who's playing the games, farm animals? <laughs> Come on. Come on. All right, but I, I went on a tangent here. Let's get back to oh, yes. Oh, yes. stepmothers. Stepmothers. Oh, yes. We were oh, yeah, our bad. stepmothers. <laughs> <laughs> I do have some Disney history that I would like to share because I found it really interesting. But first, we're going to pause for a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Got to tell you about Best Fiends. It's a game pretty much everybody's talking about. Morgan number two plays it sometimes before we start the show. You know, it really challenges your brain with the fun puzzles, but it's also a very casual game, so it won't stress you out, which is perfect these days, right? What's great is you can use the game as a way to connect with your friends and your family, all while social distancing. The game is so much more than your average mobile puzzle game. It's five-star rated, with over 100 million downloads, thousands of fun levels, and tons of characters to collect. You know, there are new in-game challenges and events every month, so the game's always fresh. You'll never be bored with it. You can even play the game without using Wi-Fi. So, here we go. You don't want to miss out on the game. Join millions of Americans and a lot of us here on the show who are already playing this fun puzzle game. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. Just go over there, hit download Best Fiends for free, Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Check it out. I do think you'll like it. Friends without the R, Best Fiends. This episode is brought to you by Arches and Halos. Between being on video calls all day, having to wear masks everywhere, and now using our eyes and only our eyes to smile at people, it feels like the main thing people notice now are our eyes. Arches and Halos is our favorite brow products that is so easy to find, pick up, and with a few quick steps, have the most amazing brows ever. They have professional quality products at the perfect price point. Celebrity makeup artists use Arches and Halos because of how well done the formulas are, and they are half the price of department store brands. They have eight color shades to choose from, everything from sunny blonde to auburn to charcoal. Everyone is represented. They cater to women and men of all brow shapes and sizes. Embrace your natural brow. And they're all about individuality. Brow tools for all looks and style needs. You can use for dramatic or natural look. 
They have an amazing range of products, too, from tweezers, razors, pencils, pomade, mousses, gels, all kinds of things. Find Arches and Halos on your next trip to Target and Walgreens. Arches and Halos Professional Brow Grooming. Be bold, be you. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So let's get back to it. Oh, yeah. uh, when Walt Disney first started making money after the success of Snow White, he purchased a house for his parents in 1938. And within a month, Disney's mother complained of a leak in the furnace. And Disney sent someone out to fix it. But still, Disney's mom, she voiced these concerns. And a couple of days passed, and the housekeeper found his parents unconscious. His dad survived, but his mom did not, unfortunately. And he never really spoke about it. But I would say his guilt over it shown through into a lot of his works that he was involved in, um, which was most of them, uh, most Disney movies up until his death. And I'm not the only one saying that I'm not a scholar by any means, but I read that (laughs) in more than one place. (laughs) And if you, I I love this, if you take into account how children's movies and movies in general work, you've got about 80 to 90 minutes to tell the story. And then you really have to get your audience invested quickly. Mm -hmm. And often at the heart of it, Disney movies are about growing up. And the quickest way to catalyze growing up is to remove the parents. It raises the stakes of the story and it makes the character more sympathetic. Um, So the evil stepmother represents so much and she, she ups the drama. The protagonist believes they have some solace, someone that the, that will comfort and care for them as their mother would have, but instead they get the opposite. And it's another lesson on the way of growing up, too, that you can't trust everybody, kids. Mm-hmm. It deepens the emotional investment, too, because evil done by someone you know that should care for you is more dramatic storytelling when we're talking about this genre of film than evil done by some some random, not com- not connected person. Um, yeah. And it does work great for horror movies, though. I got to say, like, the random <laughs> villain is terrifying. <laughs> I feel like there is a subtext there, too, that, like, has to do with there is such a strong vibe in uh, most kids' movies that, like, the love of biological parents is the purest, truest form of love. And then right. when it's one step removed and it's, like, more of, I mean, not that, like, a stepmother is, like, an adoptive role, but not a direct biological connection. It's somehow, like, sinister or removed or, like, not as possible to be as, like, true and powerful because you didn't, like, breastfeed on them or something. <laughs> you can't trust anyone that you didn't breastfeed on. <laughs> Advice of the episode. <laughs> and Jamie, that's why I don't trust you. <laughs> I didn't breastfeed. I don't trust anyone. It's <laughs> a formula baby. I do think, uh, and we've talked about this a lot, that kind of what, touching on what you were saying earlier, that um, the father figures get to be more complex and they get to have this redemptive arc, whereas like mother figures and stepmother figures do not. Like we just in general have a real anxiety around um, basically anything in between the perfect mom and a bad mom. Like, we have this bifurcation of it's either this or this, and there is nothing in between. Mm -hmm. And I think it's easier to villainize an evil stepmother. It's like a way to deal with that anxiety. Sure. Mm. Which isn't fair first. And and Jamie, you might have brought this up in different episodes that we've done usually on Disney movies, but like that's a way of like villainizing divorce almost or just like the idea of like parents splitting up and then, you know, getting remarried and introducing like step parents into the scenario. And it's like a way to be like, 
no, divorce is bad and, you know, you should stick together. It's nuts to me that yeah. there isn't more uh, divorced parents and even like amicably divor- divorced parents because they're, I mean, it's that's more kids than not have divorced right. parents and you never see that. And it's like once we see uh, divorced parents, then we can get into subsects of divorced parents of like, you know, some are more difficult than others. Others are just become the co-parenting thing. And it's just like, yeah, the, the way parenting is represented in all these movies, I feel like it's easier for a writer to kind of like what you were saying, get the parents out of the way to raise the tension. But it's like, no, parents are tense. They're, <laughs> That's true. There's a lot of tension that, that can come from there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or you could go full Jimmy Neutron and have the kids take <laughs> over the world. Oh, sure. I the love Jimmy, Jimmy Neutron. I love option. Jimmy Neutron Stan. I love Jimmy Neutron. <laughs> I want an all-female re- reboot of Jimmy Neutron. Jamie Neutron, maybe? Jamie Neutron. <laughs> I can get behind that. I can Thank get behind you that. Thank so much. <laughs> um, and another thing that you, you both mentioned earlier is um, a lot of these are these Disney movies are based on Grimm's fairy tales. And most of those stories were orally translated, transcribed, and published. And sometimes the Grimm brothers, they made these serious creative decisions, and most of them were moral, like based in their morals, their personal morals. So, for instance, in the oral stories of Sleeping Beauty and Snow White, there was not an evil stepmother. It was an evil biological mother. But Grimm changed that, and it's been that way ever since. At the time when these stories were being transcribed, marriage was less about romantic love and much more of an economical decision. Mm-hmm. If you were lucky, there was romance too, but it was a secondary thing. And since women for the most part had no way to make money or to own property, marriage was their only option in the world, which is this story that we're seeing in Disney play out over and over again with these princesses. Mm-hmm. And another thing to consider is that at the time, the the mortality rate of childbirth was really high, and it wasn't uncommon to grow up without a mother and for a stepmother to enter the picture. And if the stepmother had a child of their own, they might prioritize that child to make sure that they got some inheritance or just make sure they got some inheritance themselves. Right. Um, so, yeah, remember, it was a financial thing. Yeah, that's true. But the fact that these Disney movies introduced romance into the narrative where, you know, in fairy tales, there might have been and might not have been. You can also, like, when you're adapting things, what which is what Disney has often done, you can change the source material and, like, make adjustments to it and, you know, make introduce... Make it fit the era it's being released in. Yeah, yeah. and, like, yeah. introduce mothers and in, back into the picture and stuff like that. Which they do, but it's, like, very selective, the things that they they do to, like, the, the happy ending in most Disney movies is not an adaptation of the text. Like, The Little Mermaid yeah. ends with The Little Mermaid... Uh, a coded suicide where she turns into ocean foam right uh, yeah. because she can't be with the prince so it's it's not that they're not they're, that they're like no we have to be loyal to the text they're they're disloyal right uh, to the text which is <laughs> which is fine but it's like well if you're going to change it to like the happy ending and the marriage and the whole bit then like change other stuff too right. like it's 1989 for crying out loud <laughs> currently today i think it's 1989 yeah i think that's correct 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, so much of the violence of the Grim Fairy Tales, they did change, but not the other things. <laughs> yeah. Not the women you need to get married, but um, also children were treated differently at the time, too, much less affectionately. They were seen as like a source of labor. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the case of Cinderella in the context of when it was written, from the eyes of the evil stepmother, the only chance her daughters had for success was to marry into money. And so when the ball comes around with the chance to marry a prince, which Cinderella is too young to go to, of course the stepmother is going to say no. And of course Cinderella isn't going to like that. And of of course it's not an excuse for abusive behavior. But uh, I did find a really interesting essay looking at Cinderella from (laughs) the, the stepmother's perspective, and it was um, a fun read, a fun read. (laughs) Also, that story posits that perhaps Cinderella will one day be a stepmother herself, and her journey will begin anew. Ooh. Mm. I'd be down. I'd be down for that adaptation of yeah. like, can she break the cycle, or will she just perpetuate the toxic cycle that has taken over her family? And that's another yeah. movie where you know Disney changed a lot of the source material or made it less violent because, like yeah. in the original one, that's like the stepsisters are like sawing off their toes so that their yeah. feet can fit into the glass slipper and oh. stuff like that. Europeans are weird. <laughs> <laughs> They're just like, oh, God, I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, like, they they were trying to, they had a goal. They yeah. were trying to get the goal accomplished. And kudos to them, you know. Yeah. I love yeah. their, I'm sure that there's been, uh, I mean, there's been plenty of, like, you know, what's the word I hate? Oh, geez. <laughs> I'm going to use a word I hate and I can't even remember what it is. A postmodern. Jeez, Louise. Oh. <laughs> Horrible. Uh, but like the sort of things where it's like wicked or, you know, a look back. At, it's just why Gregory right. Maguire is a bajillionaire. But like a look back at like all the bad ladies who actually were bad asses. And <laughs> it's like, all right, sure. I mean, it's like a step in the right direction in like analyzing you know oh the way these stories are originally written or adapted or whatever were reductive and were villainizing uh female characters usually for just being female characters or you know amping up stereotypes and all that uh Although you know, I I would I I'll I'll say I don't need any more Gregory Maguire's takes on why the bad girls were actually good. <laughs> I'd prefer uh, more of like the Moana attack of just creating a new female character that you instead of you know going back a hundred years and continually because the more you like whether you're making a good point or not, the more you talk about. Uh, stuff like this, you're still giving them pa- staying power to some extent. By mm-hmm. uh, so, it's just like yeah, if you ignore people, they eventually become irrelevant <laughs> or angry if they have money. <laughs> Another thing I read when I was doing all of this research is uh, that for children, blended families can be more difficult for them to figure out if they're watching it from a young age, um, and it, it involves these nuanced, complex feelings and conflicting emotions. And uh, it kind of reminds me of that argument about some people I know say that that's why so many people love um, zombie movies is because they think that it's simpler. Like, it's more, I don't have to worry about getting money. I just have to worry about surviving. Mm -hmm. Perhaps that's just me. I watch a lot of uh, (laughs) horror movies. (laughs) But it did remind me of that, that kind of like, well, it's, 
it's simpler to dislike the stepmom. And these these fairy tales that Grimm was the Grimm brothers were transcribing did represent anxieties children had, like wondering where their next meal was coming from in Hansel and Gretel, subconsciously wanting to be rid of the parent when reaching adolescence. This makes the story more authentic emotionally to a child. I feel like I did a whole <laughs> I could <laughs> do teach a, a short lecture on how to write movies for children <laughs> 101. Yeah. A point worth making is they weren't meant for children originally, but when they were repurposed for children, it did, it translated well, Mm -hmm. those parts of it. And while modern movies have made strides in having a positive mother figure as part of their stories, these tropes are still everywhere. Mm -hmm. Finding Nemo, for instance, the mom dies in like two minutes. Oh, yeah. And... It's used as a way to showcase how great the dad is because uh, he becomes the main character. Mm-hmm. Um, and our society lauds men for being a great dad, and it's just sort of expected that women will be mothering a child uh, in their care. And, like, any imperfect mothering is immediate villain, mm-hmm. where, like, yes. imperfect fathering is so tolerated and almost expected in the, like, your tritons and poutons and all and all yeah. those. One article I read about this whole thing posited that a single father ups the drama because in a probably subconscious part of our brain, we expect him to fail and to mess up, whereas a single mother we subconsciously think is too capable and will be able to figure things out. Again, I read this. It isn't a point I'm making, but I did find it an interesting point worth including in here. Yeah, and that's tricky because it's like, yeah, women are awesome and we're good at things and men stink and are bad at things. But like, (laughs) I mean, that's a huge oversimplification. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Like, yeah, it is, it's not okay that these like, um, these standards are placed on men and women and, and, and moms and dads and, and how it's like, yeah, if you're a, a, a parent who's a woman, you're auto, you're automatically expected to be, like, the best mother in the world. Whereas, like, if a, a father puts in, like, a tiny bit of extra effort, we're like, wow, good job, daddy. You're the best dad in the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <sighs> yeah. it's, it's weird, yeah. And something else we kind of touched on earlier is this whole, like, woman versus woman thing. Because I do think it's interesting that in a lot of these examples, the villain is a woman, even though, well, yeah, and the protagonist is a woman, too. And the villain is usually an older woman who envies the protagonist's youth and beauty or talents, perhaps, or all of that. Yep. And Mm -hmm. that is what drives her dastardly decisions, like Snow White, Mirror, Mirror on the Wall, who's the fairest of them all. And when the mirror says Snow White, that's when her stepmother, (laughs) of course, like, well, kill her then. Ah, yeah. (laughs) The most reasonable response. It's so fast. She does not have to think about it. She's like, no. well, then, of course, we're going to want to kill her. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's just such a, it drives home how our value as women, the value of beauty, like, that is your power. That is your value of youth and beauty that she would just immediately there's this threat, destroy it. Yeah. Yeah. It's so bizarre. And it's like, that feels like as like crappy as that is, that feels rooted in some like sort of grounded things that still happen today where I, I feel like there's even like a, 
you know, who's the fairest of them all argument that could be applied to uh, female coworkers, where it's like female coworkers are very frequently put against each other. Um, yeah. And that being rooted in <laughs> that's what you're told, and also rooted in there's just less space for women in any marginalized group in the workplace. So it's like, yeah, all the white guys in a workplace are usually all friends because there's always going to be enough room for them. But it's like a weird, it feels like a weird subtweet of a narrative mm. to see like women turn on each other so quickly and that's the expectation because there's only so much room in the world for us, we're told. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I want to add in here that in the fairy tale version of Snow White, uh, the stepmother, I think it's Snow White, um, she is sentenced to execution and they um, put these stone clogs on her feet and there's like hot <laughs> coals in them and she has to dance to death as her feet burn. Oh, <laughs> I vaguely, oh no. <laughs> Which is brutal. Yeah. Brutal. Dance to death. Mm-hmm. I mean, Wow. <laughs> yeah. Man. That's describing I feel that ways. Friday night. <laughs> I, feel, I feel that way sometimes. Dancing in uh-huh. a... <laughs> I feel that way sometimes. Yeah. It's a metaphor. Yeah, yeah. On the, on the dance floor, feet just wildly <laughs> flailing yeah. about. Or just internally. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think we've all experienced it. Yeah. We could also go into a whole thing about what seeing this this story of the evil stepmother... Uh, says about our anxieties around adoption and non-traditional families. Sure. I think that is worth a whole episode. Mm-hmm. And these tropes have real-world impact. I read account after account written by stepmothers about how they see children internalize these tropes pretty much from the time they can see Cinderella and how they the stepmothers have had to deal with them and how it undermines their confidence as a parent. It's reflected in our language, too. For many of us, the word stepmother automatically comes with evil before it. If you just think of stepmother, it will co-locate with the word evil. (laughs) Um, In some languages, stepmother translates to lesser mother. And in American Sign Language, it's a combination of the words fake and mother. And how can that not impact how you see yourself and how confident you are in your ability to be this child's mother? And what is already a difficult situation? Yeah. Jeez. Right, that, I mean, that's such, yeah, I mean, divorce and, like, introducing, you know, new family members into your family dynamic is already a tricky situation to navigate and then to also, like, have all this language that supports, yeah, stepmothers are, yeah, like, evil and, and lesser than and fake and, you know, wannabes and all this stuff is... That's not good. We got to change that. Yeah, it's like there's, uh, yeah, like what we were saying a little bit of just like, yeah, the only pure form of love is from biological parent to biological child and anything. And even within that, fathers can still be kind of bad at it. Mm -hmm. Um, But like the love of a biological mother, there's no, there's no alternative. Yeah, no replacement. Right, which is just... I mean, hurtful to a lot of yeah. people. I mean, mm-hmm. I've everyone yeah. knows someone whose stepmom uh, did did more for them than their biological mom. Like it's just it just it is the world mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. That was my favorite part of Frozen was when like because I've been wanting them to do that forever when her true love was their sister. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, 
It was just refreshing, finally. Mm-hmm. It was something different. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and one last note on, on stepmothers is that I also read, because if it wasn't clear, I am not a mother or a stepmother. So <laughs> this is through, through things that I read online, um, that they often contend with the lack of support, lack of role models, lack of clarity about their role, and those higher expectations that we've been talking about that we place on women as parents. So mm-hmm. we don't need to add all of these <laughs> these Disney movies where the only stepmother we're seeing is not a good one. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, I think we've we've just about <laughs> we've covered Have a lot, a lot of yeah. ground. <laughs> fixed everything. <laughs> I, I think so. I think so. Um, is there is there anything else you want to touch on before we close out here? I don't think so. No, this was really fun. Yeah. Yeah, thank you both so much for joining us. This has been wonderful. Of course. We had a blast. Yes. Anytime I can... I, I have said before, I, I have like a feminist movie night where I, I make my friends. I'm like, I'm sorry. We're going to get drunk. And we're going to watch this movie, and I'm going to tell you all of my feminist thoughts about it. Hell yeah, it's <laughs> so, amazing. Anytime you want to be on this show, I th- I am going to just go ahead and throw out there that if you want somebody as a guest when The Avengers is coming out, Ooh, I got okay. it. Okay. I got yes. it. Yes, yeah. we will. And we should because there's a, an, a the fourth Avengers movie is coming out, I think, in April. Avengers, yes. Con, yeah, Avengers 500. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll have you on for that. That'll be great. Yay. <laughs> so excited. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, you can find us uh, online across all of the platforms at Bechdelcast, B-E-C-H-D-E-L. Mm-hmm. And you can find us individually. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Caitlin Durante. Caitlin spelled with a C. Uh, and I'm on Twitter at Jamie Loftus Help and Instagram at Jamie Christ Superstar. Awesome. Well, thank you again for joining us. Listeners, go check out their show. Um, and if you would like to write to us, listeners, you can. Our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast and on Instagram at stuffmomnevertoldyou. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Andrew Howard. And thanks to you for listening. <laughs> If you crack open an American history book, it's sure to be filled with founding fathers, bloody wars, and the inventions that brought this country to the industrial age. But there's a whole other world that waits for us in the shadows. Tales of unlikely heroes, world-changing tragedies, and legends that are unique to this country's spirit. So join me, Lauren Vogelbaum, for a tour of American history unlike any other, through a new podcast from iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke's Grim and Mild. Get ready for American Shadows. Listen to American Shadows on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Paper Ghosts is a true crime podcast that investigates the search for the person responsible for the abductions of four missing girls in neighboring New England towns. For more than 50 years, each case has remained unsolved. Every day is like being lost in limbo. I pray every day that we find Lisa so we can go on. It wasn't until this past year that things took an unexpected turn, a breakthrough, answers to decades-old questions, and witnesses finally ready to talk. I know that that's the 
person that was there. I can describe what he's wearing. I can smell him a mile away. Jesus, Mary, and Josephine. I hope that's not a grave for many. Oh, you know what? I think it is. Listen to Paper Ghosts on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.